I don't know if you know it, but you just sang the oldest known hymn, Christian hymn, in existence. It dates back to about the uh, 5th century. For this long, people have been singing contemplatively of Christ incarnate. And we look to Him even now as we conclude our study in the Gospel of John. Turn with me to John chapter 21, verse 25. John 21, 25. I can hear a little bit of the internal complaining already. Justin, it's Christmas, and you're doing the last verse of John. Like, couldn't we have like paused on that? Are you that determined to finish before you leave? Couldn't you have tucked this one in to last week? Um, yes. <laughs> Actually, I, I probably could have tucked it into last week, but I love the opportunity to just single out a verse when we can, because it underscores our view of the Bible around here. Every word of God inspired, every word preached. If I would have wedged in verse 25 at the end of the sermon last week, it just would have been like, oh yeah, and by the way, John says this. But it's not actually connected to directly the pericope, the paragraph from last week. So, we address it as it stands. John 21 Verse 25, I'll read it for us. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. If uh, we were professional food critics... The uh, intelligentsia of the dining world. We would uh, use a particular term for a verse like this. It's called the finish. The finish. Some of you are like, well, duh, it's the finish, it's the last verse. But you don't know what I mean. The true connoisseur of food or any particular beverage follows a process to assess its quality and be able to tell of it to others. The first is sight. You look at it. What does it look like? Uh, The second is smell. Uh, You sniff it. You want to see how it affects that particular sense because that will indeed affect the taste as well. And then you actually taste it, you you eat it, you drink it, you know, you imbibe it, whatever it is, like you take on the the full measure of whatever uh, the the food or drink may be, but the, the most important step, the last step, the one that stays with you the longest is the savoring, the finish. It's that sensation that lingers in the mouth after swallowing. It reveals the extent of complexity and depth in the cup or with the food. It could range from a a short and crisp sensation to something long and lingering, an aftertaste that develops even after time. You'll note 
different flavors after the fact than you did in the actual act of eating or drinking itself. Even if you're not a connoisseur, I think you know the difference. Let's use coffee for an example. Folgers instant coffee leaves an aftertaste. Uh, if I had to write it for a, um, a periodical, I'd probably say something like um, swamp gas coffee breath. <laughs> I've never finished drinking a cup of Folgers coffee and gone, mmm, mmm. Now, compare that with a a Panamanian gold reserve geisha coffee. Pour over. Not only would you taste like the the fruity notes of like papaya and tangerine as you you take on the coffee, but there's there's something that happens after it. There's a there's a finish. You're, you'll taste a sweetness that you did not taste in the actual drinking, and it will linger to such a degree that it will make you want more. It's the finish. What we have here in this verse, these few lines or John's inspired, intended finish. The afternotes. The the subtleties of a text that you'd savor for years to come. The key to a finish is what happens over time what it causes you to think about, and most importantly, does it make you want to return? Just ask yourself, as you savor the book of John for a moment, uh, what, have you, what have you seen? What have you smelled? What have you tasted? But what will linger? What will stay with you? What will you savor? This is exactly what, what we're being led to do here. And I think that if John is like the, the aficionado, if he's the connoisseur, and he's leading us to, to taste some afternotes, it, it could be simply limited to a sentence. And this is a, a beautiful way to, to think about it. But basically, what John is actually in, in like inciting within us the aftertaste that he wants to resonate is that Jesus has accomplished more than you could ever imagine. Jesus has accomplished more than you could ever imagine. It's really simple to to process these, these flavors. The first is just the boundlessness of Jesus' works. And the second is the boundaries of our imaginations. (laughs) 
the boundlessness of Jesus' works, the boundless, I mean, the boundlessness of Jesus' works, the boundaries of our imagination. Notice how John just says, like, it, Jesus is boundless. He cannot be contained. It, he says, there are many, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Now, he's, he's clearly, like, making uh, an emphasis on the actions of Jesus. This has been what the book is about. John has already said something similar back in verses 30 and 31. I want you to, 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 I mean, chapter 20, verses 30, 31, flip back, and I want you to see if you can spot the difference. It almost sounds like he's saying the same thing, but there's some similarities, there's some differences. When John summarized the main body of the sermon, I mean, of his gospel, what he say? Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now go back to chapter 21, verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You notice the difference? He's saying there's more, there's more. I I didn't include everything. I mean, this is pretty obvious uh, biography confession. But what I do want you to notice as John sums up both his epilogue and his main body is that he says that this book of John is about what Jesus has done. What do you savor in the gospel of John? What's, what's the aftertaste that, that should be lingering and, and continuing to provide you pleasure? It is what Jesus has done. This book is about his works. It's about what he does. He doesn't say, I'm writing these things so that you guys would know what you need to do next. He's intentionally placing their focus on the works of Jesus because those works would validate John's biggest claim that this Jesus was, two things, the Son of God and the Christ. What we've been singing about all morning in the last few weeks. That requires some validation, folks. You can't just say, I'm the Son of God or I'm the Christ without some actions to back it up. You need some verification, you need some validation, you need some credentials, and those will better be seen in actions than mere words. I think we all understand the value of assessing someone's actions on the basis of whatever they claim to be, whether it's a doctor or a builder or a lawyer or even the restaurant that you would go to after lunch today, like you, you want to know, like, do they have a body of work that backs up what they claim? I do like, sorry, Christmas nostalgia for a moment. I do like that scene in Elf where he rushes into the coffee shop and says, congratulations, world's best cup of coffee. You did it. <laughs> Of course, every coffee shop in New York claims to have the best cup of coffee or the best slice of pizza, but there's got to be something to back it up other than your claim. In a similar way, Jesus is is making a claim, and John is making a claim on behalf of Jesus that he's two huge things, and this requires a whole body of work that he's presented through the entire gospel. 
Those two things simply are Christ and Son of God. Let me put this in layman's language for everybody. Christ is the long-promised, spirit-empowered hero. I think that's the best way to think of it. Sometimes we get confused about what are we saying when Jesus is the Christ, like I thought that was his last name. That's not his last name, that is his title, Christos, the anointed one. This one who would be especially empowered by the Spirit to come and redeem and rescue God's people from all of their troubles and trials. John is saying, this is the anointed hero that you've been looking for as evidenced by all the works. I'm going to point to his works in a sec. But that's the conclusion of this thing. And so, even in the epilogue, he's like, I've been writing about the works, those authenticating works that verify him as the Christ and as the Son of God. Closely related, but different. Son of God isn't just referring to like that long-standing, eternal relationship between the Father and the Son, but also there was an Old Testament expectation that God would, would send a son or adopt a son or have a son who would be his perfect representative ruler over a broken world. You see it in Psalm 2. There would be one who would be the perfect representation of his rule in kingly human form. Now, John will let us know very clearly there's way more to this title than merely kingship, but it at least means that. And so what John says here is, I am writing to you about all of his works to show not only that he's the Christ, the hero, but he's also the son that's been promised from long ago. And the ontological son of God as well. That's how he ends it, and that's how he began it. Do you remember John 1? Before John tells you a single thing that he's trying to do, what does he do? He says, the word became flesh. He's arguing that there's this person. Go back to John 1. Just look at these few verses. Notice what John is trying to verify with these works. He makes a claim at the beginning like world's best cup of coffee, and then he's going to give you the acts to back it up. But notice the huge claim that he makes right from the first few verses. In the beginning was the Word. I was talking to my son about this verse this week. I said, why do you think he uses the Word? Why doesn't he call him the Son? Have you ever considered It's because words make the mind of someone known. The Son, Jesus, is the one who makes the Father known. You can't read my mind, but you can hear my words. It's something that, it's communicative. Like, Jesus is the communication of the Father. And as the one who communicates the Father... He was in the beginning, like before, like in the beginning, those words from Genesis 1-1, like he was there when that took place. In the beginning, before anything was made was the word, the, the expression of the Father, the communication of the Father. The word was with God, and the word was God. So notice that, the word was with God. He's, he's other than the Father, with but he's also of the same essence as the Father because it says he was God. A huge claim. Huge claim. You got to back that up. You can't just like write that one in and say, proved it. 
You've got to have some verification. So all John has been doing through the whole book is giving you deed and act and sign and sign and act and deed of Jesus to show that this indeed was the Son of God. This indeed was the promised Christ entered into the world. So he's made the big claim, but how did he do it? Well, it's pretty simple. He gave seven major signs through the entire book. Do you remember these? I just want you to, to think about all that Jesus has done before we think about what we haven't read yet. Just review. It's nice. Reminisce. Savor. Sign one. He turned water into wine, showing himself to be the miraculous provider of end-time joy. Sign two. He cleared the temple showing himself to be the authoritative restorer of worship in himself. Sign three, he healed the Gentile centurion's son, showing him to be the savior of the Gentiles, not just the Jews. The next sign, healing of the lame man. He's the Lord over the Sabbath. Remember, he intentionally did it on the Sabbath to say, I can do this whenever I want. The feeding of the 5,000 and closely associated with that, his walking on the water, showing him to be the power behind and the bringer of the new exodus. The next sign, the, the healing of the man born blind. He's the giver of light to those in darkness, a promised role of the Messiah. And then the final sign is the raising of Lazarus. He's the defeater of death. Like we've seen some pretty significant signs and acts and deeds of Jesus. But that wasn't all. That was only half the book. The second half of of this book has disclosed even more acts over and above that. And that was showing him to be the suffering servant dying for his people. The sovereign Lord who dominated death and the dominator, Rome itself. The one who would ascend to heaven, the one who would work through his church and his people, the one who was on track to return again. I mean, through all of this, we've seen some significant acts already. I mean, we've seen incarnation and verification and crucifixion and resurrection and restoration, like God's plan to work through his church. And finalization, return, the fact that he will come and ultimately right all that which is wrong. Like, we've seen so much. And what John is saying is, you've seen a lot, but there's so much more. We haven't even scratched the surface. He is boundless. He's done more. He's done more in other Gospels. He's done more in the rest of the Bible. He's done more through the work of the church and Acts and the epistles. He has done more or will do more in his return, as evidenced in the book of Revelation. Friends, all I want you to understand as we walk away from the book of John, a a savory note that you can hold on to with sweet remembering would be that this is what Jesus has done. Let me make it practical. A good reminder for us all that this gospel and the gospel is good news, not advice. It's 
It's good news, not advice. Example, the difference between the front page of the paper and the advice column. When you read the book of John, you are seeing what has been done. Not merely what you need to be doing. The gospel is news, not advice. The gospel is news, not a pet talk. This isn't hot tips and tricks for living your best life now. This is about the best life that's been provided through the life, death, and resurrection of the Christ, the Son of God. You see the difference between the two? I mean, practically speaking, like, like some of us actually come to the Bible when it should be like energizing and invigorating, and yet it's actually suffocating and intimidating. You ever had that feeling? I was talking to a church member about that earlier this week who confessed that they are reading their Bible, but it just hasn't been that joyful of an experience. And they explained to me where they were reading at that particular time. And I said, man, I understand why you would be kind of down. (laughs) But I also want to be sure that you're looking for the right thing. There's these, these alternate things that we tend to be captivated by when we're reading the Scriptures. And John has just made it known that, look, I've been writing to you about the works of Christ. You need to see more about what, what Christ has done. I've got to say that I am I'm compassionately concerned that as we've made our way through 58 sermons, now 59 in this gospel, that some are not yet seeing and savoring the Son of God, the work of Jesus. These things get buried, but the subtitle has not changed from the beginning. Seeing and savoring the Son of God. You're saying, Justin, I appreciate your concern, but uh, I think I've been pretty cool with Jesus being on every page in the book of John. That's fine. But can I just admit, and I've been here too, sometimes we're not that interested in the Son of God as much as we are like the sociology of the ancient Near East. Or the historical details actually behind the text. It's fascinating to us. It's interesting. Some Some like uh, the religious feel of just hearing from the Bible or talks creatively delivered. Some are holding out for, for, for advice for a troubled life or maybe some are listening in for support for their political agenda. Or maybe some are just here checking the box to, to satisfy the equivalent of your religious taxes to this God. But you're not here to see and savor. John says, look, I'm in the business of showing you what Jesus has done. The gospel has fascinating history and it has huge implications for our world right now and your world right now. But I love how one author put it, these things flow out of the Bible's central message like ribs flowing out of a spine or sparks from a fire. 
or rules of the house for kids. <laughs> they're not the emphasis. They're there, but like what we're looking for is, is Christ. I would remind you of those words from Sally Lloyd-Jones's Jesus Storybook Bible that is my number one gift. I always give it away. You invite my wife to your baby shower, that's the gift you're getting. If you already have one, I'll give you the Amazon gift receipt and you can buy whatever you want. But we just nailed this one down. We love that book. And I was engrossed probably 12 years ago when I first found it by these opening lines in the introduction. And I've read these before, but we need to hear them again. He says, now some people think the Bible was a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. Other people think the Bible was a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. And it takes the whole Bible to tell his story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in the puzzle, that piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see the beautiful picture. John is saying, I am showing you his story. This is what he has done, and it has been amazing, and we haven't even scratched the surface. Friends, if you have seen Jesus as... God's promised hero as validated in the testimonies of the book of John, I would simply ask you, have you applied them by trusting in him, believing in him as that ultimate hero, the one who died in your place, the one who rose again to give you eternal life? How sad it would be just to know like, yeah, great story. I love to, yeah, Jesus is the hero. And yet John clarified, I'm telling you all that he did so that you would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. Do you have that life yet? Have you been born again? Like, do you actually have like an affection for him, a desire to live for him, to walk in his ways to walk with him in the company of his people. This is what we've been praying for from the very beginning. I'm showing you what Jesus has done, not just to entertain, but to encourage life that comes through faith in him alone. Some of you are like, yes, Justin, got it. Thank you, I know. And I believe. Jesus did it, not me. Jesus paid it all, not Jesus paid it some. Thanks. What's next? Can I just tell you, friends, you've got to keep believing. You've got to keep trusting. You've got to keep looking to him. You've got to keep reading and listening and asking, who is Jesus? What has he done? How does he want me to respond in light of that? I, just take your normal Bible reading experience for a moment and just kind of run it through this grid. What are you looking for? When you open the Word of God... What are you looking for? Are you looking for interesting stuff? Are you looking for random inspiration? Are you looking to get it done so you can check it off? Or are you looking? Are you looking for who Jesus is? 
What he's done and how he wants you to live in light of that. Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures and you've missed it all because you don't see me. There's a way to read the Bible and miss the point. And so John reminds us in this brief little summary, I'm telling you what Jesus has done. Keep looking to him. For those of you who will do this New Testament in a year plan, uh, step one is like actually opening the little brochure and doing the reading. Awesome. But did you know you can actually check off every one of these little boxes and still miss the point? Maybe do this. Take your, um, take your beautifully made pamphlet. Open it up. And down here where the fireworks are, write in, who is Jesus? What has he done? Why does that matter? And ask yourself that every time you check off one of those boxes. We've got to get in the habit of doing that. We're looking to see what he has done. So, what we notice, though, is that even though we see what he has done, we haven't actually exhausted what he has done because John says, hey, there's so much more. There's more identity-verifying, life-giving works. Here's the second flavor I want you to note. He's done more than we could possibly know. He's done more than we could possibly know. Not only are we looking at his boundlessness, but our boundaries, <laughs> our boundaries. We have limits, friends. And let me tell you why this little note matters so much for you. Because all of us at times are tempted to think that we've got this thing figured out. Oh, Jesus, oh, another sermon on Jesus. Okay, I know where this is going. Uh, okay, really, we're going we're to study Jesus again? I mean, can't we get to the really important stuff? What John is doing here is preventing us from thinking that we ever get to the point that we've truly contained him. He is boundless, and you're boundaried. Like you have limitations. He says, even if you were to write down everything that he's done in all the books that were available in the world, the world's libraries could not contain it. Now, some of you, uh, more smart Alec types, you're probably thinking, well, John didn't know about the internet. <laughs> Everything's on the internet. I don't think that John here is merely saying that all the works of the incarnate Jesus couldn't be contained in a book. I don't think it's just um, quantitative, like you can't write that all down. The emphasis actually seems to be more qualitative, like you can't handle it. (laughs) You can't contain it. You can't master it. You can't wrap your arms around it. I mean, the, the book was an actually like mind-blowing technology. Think about it, friends. Somebody at some point had to invent a wheel. God did not just make that ex nihilo. And somebody at some point had to invent a writing instrument. And somebody else had to invent a way to record it. And then somebody, I mean, like 
Books were a big deal. In fact, there's actually an ancient fable about the king of Egypt who was contemplating whether or not to allow the, the technology of reading and, excuse me, writing and recording things to even enter into his country because he was thinking about the devastation that it would have on their memories. Think about that. There was a time where people were scared of the technology of a book, just like people today are scared of the internet or artificial intelligence. So John is like leveraging a technology of the day to say, even the library system, even all the books of the world, even the best that we have available to us in this world cannot contain all the stuff that he's done. It's like trying to play a a beautiful Mozart on a broken down, out of tune piano. It just, it, it doesn't fit. It's not right. It can't contain it. It doesn't express it. John's saying that you have limitations, and here's, here's where this is good, friends. This is where I want you to, to grasp good news in this, because you're thinking, like, oh, great, Justin, thanks for telling us how dumb we are. Oh, I'm, we're all in this together, and it's great news, because it means that it's an infinite journey. You ever played Tetris? Like the old Game Boy game? I'm sure it showed back up with little kids in some other version of a game. Could you imagine if, if Tetris always stayed on level one? Like, I'd, I'd stop playing after three minutes. You want more. You want more. Jesus says, you will never master me. Knowing me is an infinite journey, always satisfying, always new heights, always new vistas, always new pleasures. This is, this is why Paul said it this way. I mean, Paul, he knew Jesus well. You're thinking like, if there was anybody on the planet that knew Jesus well, it was the guy that went to seminary with Jesus out in the desert. Like the guy who was called up into the third heavens and got to see him face to face. Like if anybody like had it mastered and figured out and was ready to move on to bigger and better stuff, it was Paul. And yet what did he say after he rehearsed all of his accomplishments? In Philippians 3, he says, my desire is still that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain from the resurrection from the dead. Not that I already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Notice that. I just want to know him. I want to know him more. I want to experience more. I want to live in light of him more. Paul prays this. He not only patterns this, but he prays this. Have you never noticed that? In Ephesians chapter 3, this is his prayer. That, um, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's what he wanted for the Ephesians, like that they would just know, I love that, the unknowable. You won't ever figure this thing out. You can know him truly. You will never know him fully. That's cool. This past year, some friends and I had the privilege of seeing 
uh, Max McLean's dramatic representation of the life and thoughts of C.S. Lewis. It's still on tour now, and the title is what is, I think, so poignant here. Further up and further in. Further up and further in. It's, um, it's an apt title for a summary of Lewis's life because one of his most notable depictions of the Christian faith, of a relationship with the Lord Jesus, is that um, it was a call to go further up and further in, it, to, to go into something greater than what you already know. Um, I'll explain it to you this way. It's like the old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Lewis thought of Jesus as that fount of every blessing. If there's anything true, good, or beautiful that you enjoy in this life, think about that for a moment. Anything true that you love to learn, anything good that you love to do, anything beautiful that you love to study and see, he's saying that's just the water coming out from the fountain. There's, you need to go further up and further in. The, the source behind those springs is none other than Jesus. In fact, there's this um, beautiful scene in the last book of the Narnia series entitled The Last Battle. And the whole crew finds themselves in Aslan's country and, and they're, they're trying to find him and and they just keep running like faster and faster and faster. And they keep saying to one another, further up and further in, further up and further in. Like they can't exhaust Aslan's country. And at one point, Lucy like just kind of gives out and like takes in the scene of everything that they've seen so far. And with her is her old friend, Fawn Tumnus. And she explains to, he explains to Lucy about this recreated land of Narnia. The further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. Have you ever had that experience on a human level? Something that everybody else just thought was so stupid and insignificant, like you start to see the wonder in it and you're like, whoa, this is bigger than I thought. We call that around my house, geeking out on something. You ever geek out? I remember being a young, young, young boy, and my uncle played golf, and I'd like, oh, that's so, you know, so stupid, just hitting a ball around with sticks. He needs to play a real sport. And then, I don't know, something happens when you no longer have the athletic prowess to do other sports anymore. And you're just thinking, wow, this is a cool game. This is more than sticks and hitting a ball into a hole. Like, this is... People geek out. They buy a golf magazine. They go down the rabbit hole. But ultimately, down those rabbit holes, we're never satisfied. Our golf score is never good enough. We never really know enough. Forget golf for a moment. Another way we geek out, another thing that we, we stop and try to make bigger and bigger and bigger and try to exhaust, but we don't think can be exhausted, is just something like pop culture. I had this bad habit when I was 
first married, like I get home from work and we would turn the TV on. I didn't know better. I was I just, I didn't know better. And we would watch TV. And I forgot the name of the show. It was like TMZ or something like that. It was like just this gossip thing about all these like news, not all these like movie stars and stuff. And it's like, oh, wow, their lives are so interesting. Like you go to the grocery store and you're like, what's going on with this guy? And, and, and you start following like even culture, like pop culture. And it's just like so, like you just keep going further and further and further down the rabbit hole. And it's not satisfying. And what John is saying here is like, <laughs> this, is, this is the one that you enter into where you're not only satisfied, but you want more. What a paradox. Like when I eat a huge Christmas meal, I feel satisfied, but I don't want any more. But with Jesus, you're satisfied and you want more. Things get bigger. They get better. You can't exhaust your knowledge of Him. It never gets boring. It is an infinite journey further up, further in. And John is leaving us with this note, with this taste like, hmm, this is good. And I'll be able to enjoy more and more and more than this world could ever contain. Boundless. I'll leave you with um, these words from my new favorite old Puritan guy, Lavelle. He's talking about the value of studying Jesus, and he's not talking to preachers, by the way. I just want you to know. He published, listen to this, he published like 52 or 41 sermons. It totals about 400 pages in English. And like was selling it to people like hotcakes and like had to rerun different prints to read his sermons on nothing but Jesus. And like people were like this again, people were buying this, they're digesting it, they wanted more. And this is what he says about this study. Like when he, um, this is the, like the dust jacket. This is what he wants you to look at. Like if you're looking at the books to see if you want to read this one. He says, this, this study of Christ is the most noble subject that ever a soul spent itself upon. Those that rack and torture their brains upon other studies, like children, weary themselves at a low game. Angels study this doctrine and stoop to look down into this deep abyss. God's heart is open to men and Christ in this truth. And then he says this, It is the most sweet and comfortable knowledge to be studying Christ. What is it but to be digging among all the veins and springs of comfort? And the deeper you dig, the more do these springs flow upon you. How are hearts ravished with the discoveries of Christ and the gospel? What ecstasies, meltings, transports do gracious souls meet there? A believer could sit from morning to night to hear discourses of Christ, for his mouth is most sweet. Isn't that amazing? Like, to have that kind of view? Samuel Rutherford Put it this way in one of his letters. He says, put the beauty of 10,000 worlds of paradises, like the Garden of Eden in one. Put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetnesses, all loveliness in one. And oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet it would be less 
to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole of seas and rivers and lakes and fountains of 10,000 earths. Put all the pleasures of life, such as family, job, recreation, music, sports, entertainment, cuisine, and technology in one. And oh, what excellent joys they are, yet such joys pale in comparison with the delight of knowing Jesus and basking in communion with his person, not just his word. Is Christ the drop of rain, or is he the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains? Friends, that's what John is inviting you into. That is what he is leaving you with. I say this so practically for all who are here today. May we truly see him by faith, receive him. And for those who have already done that, savor him. I pray that your year to come, your time in the Word, your time at this church and hearing the Word of God would be bigger and better views of the inexhaustible Christ, Son of God. Let's pray. Father, how good it is to think so clearly of the bigness and the beauty of Jesus On this particular day, as we prepare to to worship Him again in His incarnation. But what we realize is that there's so much more than incarnation. There was eternal pre-existence. There is eternal plan to come. Father, we we pray that the Spirit would work in our hearts. Or to leave with us sweet tastes of who Jesus is, what He's done how we'd have us respond in light of that or take us deeper in the year to come. And for those who do not yet know the sweetness of Jesus, I pray that they would submit to Him as Lord and Christ and King and Savior today. Even as we sing these final Christmas songs, satisfy our hearts all the more with our Lord and Savior Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.